Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy this sermon from lead pastor Joe Still. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. We worship a great Savior. We just do. And there may be more work he wants to do in here today. He may want to do it in you. You know, the beginning place of that work is, is a heart bowed before him in humility. Not, not concerned about what others may see or think, but just in, in brokenness before him. And maybe at some point in the service, the Spirit of God will connect the Word of God in your heart in such a way that you just feel like you've got to go to an altar. And maybe you want to go one of the crosses and pray. It is, it's, not, it's not weird to do that. We, we won't freak out if you get up. Uh, if you just feel the need to go before the Lord and kneel, we you work. do that. Okay? Deal? Deal. Okay. We are, uh, we're, we're opening a, a passage today that Lori read to us earlier. That I am so grateful that the Lord worked out the details because I didn't. I'm not that smart to get us here today. Uh, in, in preparation, I believe, for um, what we're going to do starting next week. And we're going to talk about that kind of in closing our service today. But we're going to look at ten verses that I don't know of ten other ver- I don't know of another place in the Bible where there's more value to the words that are used than these ten verses to help us be captured by the great salvation of God. And sometimes to understand how great his salvation is, we've got to understand uh, what we need to be saved from. Some of you know that a few weeks ago, Kathy and I... Uh, went on vacation and we were grateful that you gave us that time away and I shared with you that one of the things that I do when we go to the Myrtle Beach area is um, I have to get my annual fix of all you can eat crab legs and I did we went to a place called Krabby Mike's anybody ever been to Krabby Mike's okay it's a seafood buffet you go in there and you you know you can gorge yourself if you want to and unfortunately I did my wife who loves me very very much and will do just about anything she can to help me and love me and and care for him even going with me to a place like Krabby Mike's um, a couple of days ago sent me an article and said that might have been her last time here's what the article says it's actually a, uh, a police blotter two arrested for brawl at buffet over crab legs says a fight for crab legs broke out at an Alabama buffet turned into a wild brawl where hungry diners jousted with tongs. It goes on to tell us that the tensions at the Meteor Buffet restaurant in Huntsville boiled over Friday when customers waited in line for, get this, 10 minutes for crab legs to hit the smorgasbord. And then the scuttle broke out. There was a police officer actually present, off-duty police officer, Gerald Johnson, was eating in the restaurant when this broke out. And here's what he said. He said, there was a woman, she was beating a man. People were moving and shoving and the plates were shattering everywhere. And the, and the, the report said, Johnson said this, I don't, th- this doesn't sound like a, 
a, a, a, a cop to me that I know. This sounds more like a, a reporter. But this is what they report, the, the police officer Johnson said. The seafood-centric skirmish sounded like sword fight as the crustacean-craving combatants... <laughs> Now, I, I have some friends who are police officers. We have members of our church. I've never heard one of them talk use that many C's in, in a row. As the crustacean-craving combatants turned service tongs into weapons. Imagine a fencing match, he said. I'm still going to go back for all-you-can-eat crabs legs, you know. Um, won't deter me. Now, I might have to go by myself or I might have to hire Kathy a bouncer or a bodyguard or something. But here, here's what this points to to me. It points to the brokenness of the human condition. If waiting for 10 minutes turns our hearts into such a position over crab legs, I got their pictures of the two people who were arrested. Over crab legs. We need to talk about a great salvation today. Something that would save a human heart from finding and falling into that kind of depravity. And the verses we look at do that. And so what I want us to think about today is this. I want to think about the great salvation of our God. And I want to do it in preparation for where God's taking us in the coming weeks. And I want you to see starting out the gate... And this is kind of the first blank. If you're filling in, filling in the blanks on your worksheet, it's this. The first thing that I want you to see from our, our passage of Scripture today is what we're saved from. And it's this. God saves us from that human condition. God saves us from losing our minds and beating each other with tongs over crab legs. And he saves us from worse. He saves us from the human condition. Now the first three verses, basically the way this breaks out is the first three verses tell us what, what Jesus saves us from, what God's great salvation saves us from. The last three verses tell us what he saves us to. And the, the four middle verses kind of show us what he saves us through. And that's the order in which we're going to deal with these. Verse 1 starts out by saying that we're dead in our trespasses. You're in, this, you're in this dead condition because of sin. And we talk about this idea of being sinful. What, what does that mean? Well, the first thing it means to be, you know, enslaved to sin and, and dead in sin, it, it means that we're, we're, we're enslaved to it. We're just, we're, we're captured by it. Look at verse 2 and 3 with me. It says, following the course of this world, following the prince and power of the air. Then in verse 3 it says, we lived, you know, in the passion of our flesh. Some translations say we were following the desires of our sinful nature. There's this, this idea, you know, in that, in that language this, that we're following something. Now the English word following, we, we probably think more like follow the leader. Kind of like it's a game or something. But the language here in the original, in, in the original great language has to do with being mastered, being controlled. It's, it's the way that an animal that had a nose ring with a rope in it would be pulled along. That's the kind of following you would be doing. You, you're being forced into something. Because what it says here is we have no power to exert over it. it I mean, Paul compares us to a corpse. He said we're dead. Lifeless. We, we don't have any ability to fight back against this in, in and of ourselves. And so we, 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 we're just completely enslaved. And there are a couple of things I just want to point out that we're, we're enslaved to. We're enslaved to, according to uh, Paul here, we're enslaved to the ways of this world. 
We're enslaved to that, that, that pathway that the world's on towards destruction. It also says that we're enslaved to the prince of the power of the air. That's the devil. That, that's Satan himself. And a key thought of what it means to be enslaved is found in verse 3. It says, we once lived in the passions of our flesh. Now that word flesh there, you may want to circle it. It, it doesn't mean skin and meat that's hanging on your bones. Uh, when the Bible talks about this, it's, it's talking about our self-centered nature. It's talking about the, the center of our, of our hearts. Some of you will remember the, the famous line that I think Flip Wilson kind of put forward. It was, the devil made me do it. You know, and, and sometimes we live that way. We live thinking, well, that wasn't really me. The, the, the devil made me do it. Well, I want to run with that thought for just a minute. Because there's some, some comparison here in God's word that I, I want us to see. Last week we talked about the devil a little bit. I'm not going way back into that again. But here's the question. What made the devil the devil? What was it that actually made him the devil? Interestingly, we, we, we were gathered as um, leaders last night, our elders and deacons and their wives, um, just sharing together uh, uh, in fellowship and in God's word. And one of the passages of scripture that we looked at was uh, the letter that Paul wrote to Timothy about leaders and, uh, and about elders and deacons. And in verse 6, Paul wrote this. He, he, he was talking about not laying hands on, not making somebody a leader in a church too quickly, an elder or, or a deacon. And he said, because what will happen is... That person would become conceited. Then look at what he said. And then, for, for then he will fall under the same judgment as the devil. What the, this idea of conceit is what made the devil the devil. Arrogance, self-centeredness, uh, a belief that I, I, I deserve more, I, I, I need more. That's what made the devil the devil. Pride. Conceit, self-centeredness. Now, as interesting as it may be for us to spend the rest of the day talking about the devil, we're not going to do that, but here's what we are going to talk about. Our hearts can be on that same trajectory. Our hearts in their sinful human condition have basically the same problem that Satan had. That, that made this glorious angel that God created for beauty into the devil. Because of his conceit and pride. And according to the Bible, it's the reason we're enslaved to sin. Because the human heart, apart from God, is terminally self-centered. Martin Luther, one of the great theologians and reformers in the Christian community, was writing, um, uh, as he was reading the, the book of Romans, he was kind of writing a commentary on it. And when he got to some of the sections about the human heart, here's, here's what he said. He used this phrase. He said, the human heart is incurvatus in se. It's Latin, incurvatus in se. And what that simply means is, it is turned in, it's bent in on itself. It's curved in on itself. It's self-centered. It's always looking inside. It's always absorbed with self. And he puts it in one sentence. He says, our nature is so deeply curved in on itself that it wickedly, curvedly, and viciously seeks all things, even God, he says, for its own sake. That's what sin is. And apart from Jesus, we're all curved in ourselves. We're all self-centered. We're all self-justifying. We're all self-absorbed. The human heart, that's the description of it. And we will use anything and anybody, even God, we will attempt to use God for our own sake. 
That's the essence of sin. Everything centers around us. If you, if you think about it like this, uh, to, to be a sinner according to the scriptures, to be sinful means that 24-7, 365, you have this computer in, inside of you that is constantly scanning every person, every exchange, every moment in time, everything around you, constantly scanning, asking this question, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? Everything gets focused on our glory, our power, our comfort. Everything. That is sinful self-centeredness. And we know from history that can turn you into a really cruel person. Many of us could point back and look at great tyrants in history. Those who went on to become, you know, genocidal maniacs, dictators who slaughtered millions and millions of, of, of people. Because they were so self-absorbed, because they got so self-centered, so egotistical, so conceited, that they became the devil. That, that's, that's where they were on track for. Now for most of us, we don't find ourselves there. For most people, that, that, you know, the world is not made up completely uh, of those people. Because normally what happens is when we're pursuing self-centeredness, it, it'll do things like, it'll make you more moral. Some people, it just makes them more moral because they desperately want to feel good about themselves. And the way to feel good about themselves is to get people to think certain things about them. To think about them, so they start trying to manage their image, so they start living a certain way to get control over others. And there's usually not a better way to do that, especially in, you know, Christian circles than living very morally. But self-centeredness drives that. Self-centeredness drives all of that, you know. So you, you start serving the needy, but you're not serving the needy because you, want, you care about the needy as much as what the needy give you. They may give you praise or accolade or people around you may applaud you. You know, you, you may be good to an aging parent or good to your kids. But it's more about what people see than the goodness that you're pushing out. Because of the self-absorption. Luther said, apart from God, you're doing it all for you. Not for their sake, but for yours. Helping people, serving people, all for, for, for self. Working hard. But the hard work is all about you. It's all about your stuff. And now Jesus, Jesus himself spoke to this issue. Greatest sermon ever preached, ever delivered is recorded in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And in that, right in the middle of that message, Jesus stops and says these words. He says, beware. He's been talking about a beautiful life, a, a life of righteousness. And then he stops and says, beware. Now if Jesus tells you to beware, what should you do? Beware. In the middle of this incredible sermon, Jesus, and, and it's really about life in the kingdom, living life righteously, Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness in front of people. Beware. It can get destructive. It can destroy your soul. It can destroy the people that you love. Be, beware. And so he tells us some ways that we need to, to watch out for these. He says, when you're given to the needy, you need to do it so secretively so that your left hand doesn't even know what your right hand is doing. If, if, if you, it'll destroy your soul if you don't. He says when you pray, don't pray to be seen. Don't, don't do that. It'll destroy your soul. Instead, lock yourself in a closet. Go where nobody can see you and, and just pour your heart out to your father. 
That's, that's Jesus' prescription for battling against the kind of righteousness that leads to self-centeredness. How many of you remember the, the Rocky series? You know, Rocky Balboa, dun, 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 dun. You remember that? It, it sounded a little different than that probably. But in, in the first Rocky movie, Rocky and his wife, what's her, what was her name? Adrian! He, that was his wife's name, you know. And uh, in, in the movie, there's this early exchange between Rocky and his wife, Adrian. And she's asking him, why do you got to do this? Why, why, why are, you, 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 you can't win. Why, why are you going, why are you going to go in and just take a beating? Why, why, why would you do that? And, and Rocky says, he says, I just want to know I can go to the distance because if I can go the distance, then I'll know I'm not a bum. All of us have moments in our lives when we feel like bums. And we think if I could just have this great win, I could spend the rest of my days pointing back to that event and know that I'm not, not a bum. I, I, I could know that. And, and so, here's what's going on with all of us. We're all trying to convince ourselves and trying to convince the world that we're not bombs. And we've spent our lives trying to just press into that. And it's self-centeredness. And it doesn't do anything for your soul. And it shows up sometimes through morality, sometimes through religious pursuits. Another thing that the great reformer Martin Luther wrote extensively about is how self-centeredness can actually drive you to pursuing religion. Doing all these religious activities. You know, you're there every time the church is open. You're doing all these religious things, but it's all not for God, but for you. Remember, because our heart will use even God because of our self-centeredness. Now somebody, you might say, okay Joe, well how do I know the difference? How, how can you tell the difference between knowing whether my heart is just turned in on me or whether I'm actually doing this for others? Well, here, here's kind of a way to know that. This is called a litmus test. When things aren't going your way. When, when, when things are not going the way you had hoped or planned somebody that you love gets sick and dies something happens tragic in your life God is not answering your prayers in the way you want him in the time you want to you bail you pull back you walk away that's one of the indicators that your heart is turned into yourself because you're asking questions like this I've lived so well I, I've tried so hard. I've, God, I've done so many things for you. Why aren't you coming through? Because it was all for you. It, it was all for you. And you're not following God for God. You're not into the Christian faith for, for, for following Jesus. You're in it for yourselves. And that's the only reason for obedience. It's because it, it's a self-centered thing. And that self-centeredness just clings to you. And here's what it does. It will make you miserable beyond miserable. Ephesians 2 verse 3 tells us a little bit about this. It says, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out those desires. We, we, we've all been in that. And that, that word passions is a, is a word there that means inordinate desire. It, it would, in, in our culture, would probably best be aligned with the word addiction. 
It would best be aligned to a word like addiction. And, and what it's, you know, there is nothing on this planet that is more addictive than ego. Than the human ego. There's nothing more addictive. There's nothing more destructive. There's not a, a, a chemical on the planet that's more addictive than the human ego. Desiring to live for yourself, for your own glory, for, for compliments, for acclaim, for power. There's nothing more powerful and addictive than, than the human ego. But here's the deal. It always needs more. It always has to, to be fed. It's never enough. And so because of that, the Bible tells us, excuse me, because of that we become children that in verse 3 again says we're children of wrath. Excuse me, I'm going to cough. Turn it back on. C.S. Lewis is another one who writes extensively about this and I commend pretty much everything the man has written. He, he writes about self-centeredness and, and what that does to the human heart. And, and the language that Lewis uses is he says, it, self-centeredness, creates hell in you. It actually, it's the beginning of the human experience with hell. And you say, well, why would he say that? Well, do you remember what made the devil the devil? What was it? Pride, arrogance, conceit, self-centeredness. That is the pathway that the devil was on to become the devil. And it is the pathway that leads anyone to hell. And it starts with things that are always just thinking about myself. About my feelings, about how I'm being treated. Am I being treated fairly here? You know, and what begins to happen is nothing makes you happy. You just become more miserable and more miserable. And here's, that is the seed of hell growing in your life before you ever arrive there. It's hell starting in you. But it eventually takes you there if Jesus doesn't intervene. You can go towards the devil or you can say no. I, I'm not going to pursue that. I'm going, I'm going to do something different. I'm going to follow Christ like the three who followed him in baptism and said, I don't want that other way. I want to be set free from that captivity. And that leads us to the second point here today about God's grace salvation and it's this. His salvation leads you out of that human condition to a better worldview, to a better way of seeing the world. And I want to jump down to the end of the passage to get us thinking about this. It's the kind of life that God wants to give you through salvation. A couple of fascinating terms here that I want you to see. Um, it says in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it's not of yourself. It is the gift of God. Circle that word gift if you're marking on your notepad or, your, or whatever. It, it, it says you're not being saved by how good you are. You're not being saved because of anything moral you do. Salvation is a gift. Now here's the deal on this. Once you get that gift, the Bible tries to help us see God's plan is is that then we would start seeing everything we have as a gift. Our salvation begins to change our worldview. We have a different view so that everything we have is a gift. It says you even start looking at your faith, your capacity to trust God. It's a gift from God. God wants us to live where we see everything as a gift. And here's how that begins. I have to stop believing I deserve things. 
If I'm going to see everything in this world, even the difficult things as a gift that God is bringing into my life because he's transforming me into the image of, of Christ, if, if my mind is to get there, I've got to quit thinking of myself as someone, I deserve this, or I deserve that, and I don't have it, so I pursue it. See, the word faith in the Bible, it's not an intellectual pursuit. There's, there's intellect. It's not devoid of thought. But it really means trust. It really means to just kind of rest. It's not, it's not one of those words where you've got to have a lot of activity. It's just your, it's simply trusting. And one of the things that happens in the human soul when they start resting in Christ is they start seeing everything as a gift. Everything starts becoming a gift. So that when you get to verse 9 and you read these words so that no one can boast. See, if it's, if it's work, if it's something you're doing, you could boast about it. But if it's a gift from God, you can't boast. You, you, just, you just rest. No, no more boasting. Because if you're saved outside of yourself, there's nothing to boast about. And Paul actually talks about this boasting stuff a lot. He writes to the church at Corinth in, in 1 Corinthians 1.29 and he says this, As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. You, if you're in the presence of God, if you're resting in God, you know what's going to happen? You're not going to boast anymore. You're not going to be on that, in that human condition wheel where it's about you and about what you need and what you can get and where you're being let down by people. It's not going to be about that. Because you're going to be resting in Jesus. And so you're not looking for this other thing to boast in. Now, when you hear the word boasting, when you hear the word, oh, he's boasting. What's another word that comes to your mind? Bragging. That, that's another word that we associate with boasting. In the culture that this was being written to, the church at Ephesus, they wouldn't have thought of boasting that way. They would have thought of boasting more like getting psyched up for a big game. Um, anybody ever been on like a, a team sport and sometimes, you know, on your team when you were getting ready to go out on the field against another team, you did something called talk trash? Anybody ever trash talked? You know, yeah, I've, I've talked a little trash in my day. And that's, that's that idea. In the ancient culture, you can even see this in God's word. Before these guys would go into battle, before they would run out into battle thinking, I may not make it back. In order to get themselves psyched up for something like that, they, they, would, they would do this. They'd start boasting. And they would boast in, hey, we got more chariots than them. We got more armor than them. Our king's got a better sword, bigger sword than their king. You know, they, they would look for all these things to be boasting in. The boasting was not because they were bragging. The boasting was so that they could face life. And so very often, that's what our boasting is about. I think, I think Paul, when he was writing about this, had Jeremiah 9. In, in, in his thought. In Jeremiah 9.23, the Lord speaking through the prophet of Jeremiah says this. He said, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. You ever boasted? Maybe just internally about how smart you are about something? You ever boasted? You know, says, don't let the mighty man boast in his mind. You ever, you ever boasted in your own strength? What you're capable of? You ever, that thought ever played out in your mind? It says, don't let the rich man boast in his rich. You ever boast it, trust it? In your capacity to, to earn? God's word says, don't, don't boast there. But here's the deal. Life outside of Jesus Christ means that we're looking for something else to boast in, to rest in, to be, to be proud of, to give our, ourselves the confidence to face. It's, it's that kind of boasting trash talk that we have to do to just simply psych ourselves up to face the next day, to get out of bed the next morning. 
Oh, look at our warrior king. Yeah, I, I can go out on the battlefield now. Look at the chariots we have. And here's the thing. When you, when you hear that, you think it's what they're looking at. They're not really looking at those things. They're looking to those things. They're looking to those things to save them. They're looking to those things to give them uh, enough juice to get out there. To walk out the door in the morning and face that person at work. To, to, to go to school and face the persecution. To, to, to just get out there. They're looking for something to boast in to, to help themselves face the next day. So what are you looking for? What are, what are you looking to boast in? Some people boast in their career. Some people boast in their salary. Some people boast in uh, their, their morality. Some people boast in their political party affiliation. Some people, some people boast in their, their religion. And, and it's looking to something that eventually exhausts you because you have to keep working. You have to keep it propped up. You have to keep moving it along. You have to perform. And it gets harder and harder and harder because here's the truth about all of us. Eventually we fail. Eventually we all come to that place where we fail and we're not good enough and we're scrambling for an identity and we realize I'm a bum. That's what you begin to think about yourself. What would a life apart from that look like? It would look like grace. It would, it would look like a, a gift. You wouldn't be boasting. What, what would a life of not boasting look like? I want to make three comparisons real quickly. The first place that you would see it is there would, there would be this great divide between anger and contentment. See, if, if, if you believe everything you have is a gift, more than things that you deserved, and that means, you know, no matter how life goes, you would say, well, Lord, th this is your best for me right now. I'm trusting you with the, I, I don't deserve what I have, God. So even though I'm having to face it, God, I'm trusting you. And your heart always has a bent towards content. Your heart is just, is bent that way. Now, if, if you're on the other side, if you're on this other side that you're always looking for something to trust in and you're trying to maybe earn salvation or get confidence and you're working very, very hard, when life doesn't go well for you, when circumstances don't go well for you, you get mad. You, you get angry. You get angry at yourself. You get angry at other people. You eventually get angry at God. And so there's, there's this low level of anger just kind of residing in your soul. How's your contentment quotient versus your anger quotient? What's that like for you? Another comparison is between contempt or disdain for other people and acceptance. You know, it, it's okay to be a person who is a hard worker and you work hard and you do your due diligence. But if your identity is wrapped in that, if that's what makes you save face, if that's what gets you up in the morning, if it's the thing you boast in, then what's going to happen is you're going to start despising others. You're, you're going to start looking down on other people. People of different cultures, people of different religions, people of different politics. You, you'll just, you'll just start disdaining everybody. Now, most of us know it's not culturally, you know, sweet to disdain people publicly. So what you do is just, you, you just kind of look down your nose at everybody. You, you just kind of uh, pick that up and take that on. And you regard people as less than you. And you start literally despising. Again, you don't say it out loud, but here's what happens. Slowly in your soul, you become miserable. You become this miserable person that nobody, 
nobody can measure up to. And you just have this disdain for everybody. And the only thing that breaks that is grace. Is coming to the place where you realize, I don't deserve anything. I don't deserve it. That's, that's a point of grace. Another comparison is bitterness and forgiveness. If you know you're saved by grace, not by anything you've ever done, you, your heart is now positioned to start forgiving others. But, if you can hold a grudge, if you are finding bitterness taking root in you, the starting point of that is always a sense of superiority to that other person. Because a heart like that would say, well, I would never hurt anybody the way you've hurt me. I would never do such a... It's, it's this superiority kind of thing. But if somebody, you know, gets to the place where they say, the truth about me is I'm just a sinner turned into a saint by the grace of God, you can start forgiving. If you're able to get to a place where you said, I'm just a sinner turned into a saint by grace, you can accept the flaws of others. If you're a sinner saved by the grace of God and turned into a saint, you, you, you will be content. You won't always be wrestling at night because somebody snubbed you or didn't give you your just due. A sinner saved by grace becoming a saint relaxes, rests in Christ. And that leads us to what I think is the third truth about our great salvation, God's great salvation found in this passage today and it's simply this, what he saves us through. He saves us through giving us a better boast. He gives us something that we really can boast in. Something worth boasting. Something that we can gain, that our souls can actually gain traction in that we don't have to work in. It's very simple, but it's profound, and it's found in verse 6. It says, God raised us up with him. Talking about Jesus. When God raised Jesus from the dead, God raised those in Christ up with him. And then he seated him in the heavenly places, and he seated us with him. That's where, that's where it says. Now, we all know that Jesus was raised from the dead. We believe he was seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly realms. Now, uh, ancient people, the people that this was originally written to, would understand that differently because they knew that when a great battle had taken place, you know, uh, outside of the city somewhere, when the general, the, 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 the conquering general came into town, they threw a great parade, and guess where that general went and sat? He sat down at the right hand of the king. And so, this church, the church at Ephesus, when they're receiving this letter, they look at what Jesus did. And they say, yes, that makes sense to me that he would go through all this. He would sacrifice. He would win this great, great victory. And he would be seated at the right hand of the Father. But then Paul says, when, when, when he was raised, you were raised. Where he got seated, you got seated. Now, when, when I read that and I look at in the mirror, I, I realize I hadn't died yet, so how did I get raised? I know I'm seated right here. I'm not seated in there. Well, it's not talking about literally. It's talking about legally. A few weeks ago, we talked about some of what that looks like. What it means to, to have this legal inheritance. And what, what, what the Bible is saying, what Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus is, legally right now, you're seated with Jesus. 
That, that, that's where you're at. You, you, are, you are seated with Jesus. You are so hidden in Jesus that where he is, you are. You are covered by his sacrifice. Jesus has done that for you. So that when God looks at you, what he does is he celebrates you like he celebrates his son. Not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus did. He delights in you. God honors. Have you think, ever thought about God honoring you? We always talk about honoring God. God. God honors you. He accepts you. He rejoices over you the same way he rejoices over his son. You say, Joe, where do you get that from? Look at verse 7. Look at verse 7. It, it, it says, because of his kindness... To us in Christ Jesus. You may want to circle that word kindness. Sometimes we think about that word kindness as kind of, it's a kind of a sentimental word. It's sweet, it's kind, you know, that kind of thing. But here this word kindness means costly action. It, it cost, there was a great, great cost involved. It's not just using words that say I love you. It's putting your money where your mouth is. It's putting your life where, where your mouth is. It's doing something costly. What did Jesus Christ do? Well, I'll tell you what Jesus did. We, we, we read about this. It, it tells us that he put himself where we should have been. We, we, we try to put ourselves at the center of our lives where God should be. He put himself where we should be, hanging on a cross. Separated from God. Only God should be at the center of our lives. See, the, the essence of sin is simply this. It's putting ourselves where God deserves to be. And salvation is God putting himself where we deserve to be. That's what his salvation is. On the cross. See, because Jesus went and, and because he went and took our seat, separated from God, Experiencing the wrath of God that we should have experienced. Taking on the physical death, the spiritual death that we should have, that wrath of God that we read about in verse 3. The Bible tells us that Jesus left the glory of heaven. And he did all of that for us. He went and took our seat so we could be seated with him. John Stott kind of did the gospel in a nutshell in, in, in two sentences and I love the way he put it. He said this, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. The essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. See, when we put ourselves where only God deserves to be, that's sin. And when God puts himself where we deserve to be, that's salvation. So, so how does this work? How, 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 does, how does this really, really work? How did Jesus Christ save? Because his salvation comes absolutely opposite than the way we try to work it out. Through our self-centeredness. He, he, he did the most unself-centered thing ever done. Left the glory of heaven. Left splendor. Left, left the right hand of the Father to come down here. And not just come down here as a ruler. He came down here, the Bible says, as a slave. He took, he took on the form of a human being even to, to, as to a slave. And he did it so that he could swap his life for yours. Now here's the deal, friends. When you see him doing that, when your heart gets enraptured, wrapped around, and you can't think of anything else but what Jesus did for you on that, you understand how you can get seated at the seat of honor. You understand this. Because, because of what Jesus did, your heart gets absorbed into that and your confidence changes. You begin to boast in something completely different. 
Paul wrote to the church at Galatia something about this boasting. He said this, far be it from me to boast in anything except the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not, I'm not going to boast in, in anything else. Let me illustrate what that looks like in, in a real life. I read this this week. It was a pastor, an experience that he had. He says, years ago I remember talking to a woman who lived in a really impoverished little neighborhood a block or two away from our church. She had a hard life. She battled many addictions. One was a sex addiction. She thought her only value was in a man. And so she lived a life of abuse. She had been beaten. She was always falling for some guy who misused her. But at a certain point, her life changed. She, she made a radical shift. She came to Jesus. And she turned from all of that. And a few years later, when this pastor ran into her again, he, he said, what happened? And she said this. She said, Christ became my life. No man is my life. No money is my life. No substance is my life. These things are not important to me. Not if I have Jesus and I have his love. She went on to say, when I look at a man now looking at me, what I think in my heart might be something like, hmm, not bad. I could see myself married to him. But I don't need that man to be a whole person. I don't need to be married in order to be a whole person. You might be nice, but you're not my life because Christ is my life. Do you know what she's doing? Do you know what the great transformation that has taken place there? What she's boasting in. She's no longer boasting in anything but in Jesus. She's no longer pursuing anything. All those things that controlled her life, the, the cravings of her heart. Remember the soldiers, what they boasted in trying to find confidence for, to face the day? Remember we said one of the things that they boasted in was, you know, that their king had the biggest spear. Do you know what your king did? Your king took the spear for you. Do you know what your king did? Your, your king, your king ran on all the battlefield. But he grabbed you who were wounded. And he battled your sores. I mean, he, 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 he cared for you. He bound up your, your wounds. He took off his armor and he put it on you. And he took all the arrows himself. That, that's your king. If you need something to boast in, boast in that king. You don't have to live a life of self-centeredness, a life of, uh, of addiction to ego. And the only thing that will ever break that chain, that bondage, is coming to understand how great his salvation is. The only thing. That his salvation is so great that he gives you something that you can boast in that will transform your whole life. And when that, when that boasting in something new, something real, something valuable, something that you can't earn gets traction in your heart, it'll give you a whole new view and you'll see everything as a gift. It'll all become grace. And that's the only thing that will ever help anyone overcome this human condition. So we don't fight over stupid crap legs and everything else on the planet. Let's pray.
God, we are so thankful for your word that tells us about the great salvation that we have only in Jesus. God, forgive me when I boast in myself. For my accomplishments, God, forgive me. Forgive us. Maybe you just need to do some work with the Lord right where you're at because you've, maybe you've looked at your heart of anger and realized you're not content. Maybe you've looked like it's your heart of looking down your nose at other people and you realize you don't accept others and you're enslaved to that. Jesus wants to break that chain today. He wants to give you new life. He wants to give you the kind of life where you see everything is a gift, everything beautiful from your father. You see him. And he quit boasting in those other things. And he helps you overcome your battle with the human condition. And maybe you're here today and for the very first time you came to realize what, what Jesus did. That yes, he came to set you free eternally from the penalty of sin so you miss hell. But now you're understanding that he came to set you free from the power that sin has on your heart that makes you like dead people right now. And you want to be free. And so maybe right now you just want to come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I call on you. I believe you. I, I'm trusting you. I've tried trusting myself. I've tried trust, boasting in other things. But Jesus, I just come. I'm going to rest in you now. I'm going to give my life and my heart to you. And the Bible says if you call on Jesus like that, you'll be saved. You'll experience this great salvation and he'll come in. And he'll give you something to really boast about. That'll never let you down. He'll give you something, a new view on life. And he'll help you overcome that condition of brokenness in your heart and pain. Jesus, we come. We come in this moment to celebrate the great, incredible salvation that we have in you and in you alone. We, we, we come, God, in this moment just coming saying that there's nothing to save like you. Nothing, God, that can save like you. And we declare that as we worship you now. And as we give to celebrate the goodness that you've wrought in our lives. And we pray this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, the three in one who give us our great salvation. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you're in North Charleston this Sunday, please consider visiting us at our 9 o'clock or 1130 services. We'd love to see you. Again, for more information, visit riverbluff.org. Now go change the world.